you pleased today to have with us Ambassador Dory Gold, best-selling author and former ambassador from the State of Israel to the United Nations. Um, Dory Gold has been at the center of many of Israel's recent uh, diplomatic initiatives around the world, including establishing former uh, uh, formal relations with countries uh, uh, that haven't been in Israel's orbit over the years, but also of establishing very strong alliances with countries like India. Um, and um, we're going to talk about uh, several subjects, but I'd like to begin by asking Dory, there are some headlines here in the United States that the Prime Minister of Israel um, uh, was the subject of a police investigation or is the subject of a police investigation. And I just want to know if politically in the state of Israel, that particular initiative by the police um, is in fact uh, causing political turmoil in Israel or is uh, the Israeli political coalition that is con currently in power uh, still uh, functioning? I think there are two sentiments in Israel that actually do not contradict each other but they are the prevailing sentiments. Number one, Israel is a country of law, and we have a legal system, and we'll allow our legal system to uh, deal with these uh, suspicions. Um, uh, but at the same time, I think there's a broad recognition that Prime Minister Netanyahu has led a revolution in Israel's standing in the world. And I think what people hope for is that the rule of law will be preserved and um, Israel's new relations around the world will continue to grow. Uh, going on to a story that made a tremendous amount of news around the world and specifically here in the United States is a recent exchange between Israel's military forces and Iranian slash Hezbollah forces, which began with Israel shooting down a drone um, and uh, and included an Israeli warplane being shot down. Can you explain what the facts of this situation are and uh how Israel responded, and what that says about the region's um, uh, situation between Israel, Iran, Syria, and all the other players. Well, basically it goes like this. Since 1979, and we really have to go back that far, Iran has been on the march in the Middle East. That march has been was somewhat held back by other regional developments uh, in, uh, across the area, but as of late, particularly with the defeat of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, the Iranians have renewed their efforts. It's well known 
that they have been active in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. They have been uh, active in Yemen. Their navy has been expanding its uh, area of uh, patrols outside of the Persian Gulf into the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea. So uh, how we say this, Iran is on a roll. But now the Iranians decided to take it just one uh, another step. When they launched an unmanned aerial vehicle uh, towards Israel to cross the Lebanese-Israeli border, where they seem to have also used the path going through Jordan partially, uh, what and enter Israeli airspace. This is something which um, we have never seen before. The Iranians always used to like to use proxies, somebody who would fight for them, spy for them, uh, attack Israeli and Western targets for them, like Hezbollah. But having Iran do it itself is a whole new ballgame. Uh, Israel has been warning consistently, and in particular this is Prime Minister Netanyahu who has been leading the charge in this area. Israel has been warning that uh, in the f near future, one of the great dangers that could emerge in Syria as we move to a Syrian ceasefire is that Iran will stay in Syria with its own forces, with its own boots on the ground, and convert Syria into a satellite state of Iran. That means there'll be Iranian ground forces there. There may be Iranian air bases there. There may be Iranian naval bases in the Mediterranean. That is something which Israel cannot accept and will not accept. And it is our hope that all the great powers will agree with us on this point. And you know what? There's a chance even Russia might agree with us. But that requires a lot of diplomatic work, and that's what Israel's engaging in at present. What has come out of, from a military perspective, of the exchange between Israel and Iran the one which included what you've just been addressing, is Israel now seen as being militarily vulnerable? Um, or is it the other way around? Is, are there lasting uh, implications from the exchanges that recently took place? Well, Israel's adversaries have expressed satisfaction and focus as a result on the fact that Israel lost an F-16I uh, in this military exchange. I don't know if it was an ambush, but our Air Force found itself in a dense area of anti-aircraft fire, including some old systems like the SA-5, a long-range Soviet anti-aircraft system. And uh, one of these missiles exploded very close to our F-16. As a result, our pilots had to ditch the plane, bail out. Uh, they are okay. One of them was wounded, but he's doing very well in hospital. 
uh, and the plane went down into a ball of flames. That, for the, um, our adversaries, was a big success. But the other side of the equation is that Israel found roughly what's been announced 12 separate targets uh, in the north, in Syria. Some of these targets included very um, sensitive Iranian sites on Syrian soil, including a command and control center, which the Iranians used for dispatching air power against Israel. So on the one hand, we don't know yet why the Israeli plane fell. Was it just the uh, air defense missile of the uh, Syrians that did it? Was there a pilot error? Was there a technical problem? Um, but whatever it was, the bigger story is that Israel knew exactly where the Iranians are located in Syria, and those areas were hit very strongly. Moreover, since we suspect that the Iranians may yet again try and cause harm to Israel, Israel destroyed half the air defense missiles of Syria in that military um, exchange last weekend. So, uh, yeah, you do lose some things in, in war. War does not have risks. Is without, or war has risks, I should say. But um, Israel demonstrated its prowess, and its prowess is both in its intelligence collection and in its operational strength. One of the biggest changes that has occurred since the election of Donald Trump has been a strengthening of relations between Israel and the United States, and also of the building of a coalition that includes the United States and Israel in a coalition that is opposing the expansion of Iran. Can you talk briefly about um, what this new relationship um, between Israel and the United States means, and do you think that it, it, that it actually exists? Um, and secondly, what are the implications for the region? The easiest way for me to answer your question is to take you into a slight detour into history. Uh, right after World War II, you might remember, we had a, uh, a war that pitted Nazi Germany against allied powers like France. And suddenly now, with Nazi Germany defeated in 1945, France, Germany, and other countries like uh, Netherlands and Belgium all found themselves on the same side when they had to face Soviet armored divisions that were massing in East Germany and in Czechoslovakia. In other words, the common threat took former adversaries and put them together. Now, what made that coalition possible with the eventual emergence of the NATO alliance was the leadership of the United States under Presidents Truman and Eisenhower. And uh, that changed the shape 
of uh, the, what's sometimes called the security architecture uh, in Europe. Well, if you take the Middle East, and now you go fast forward to 2018, you find former adversaries, Arab states, who want to have better relations with Israel. They check it out, they investigate it, they may do it step by step, but that's the general direction. And they are finding themselves on the same side of the fence as Israel, not because of a Soviet Union existing, that's gone, but because of the imperial expansion of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so, ironically, while this is a direct threat to all of us, it's also leading to a semi-positive development, the possibility of these countries all grouping together. So what you described is very much conceivable. And I think the first American president who's internalized that and maybe acting on it, it's a little early to say, is President Donald Trump. And if he forms the equivalent of a Middle Eastern NATO, even without a formal alliance, even without formal meetings, it will be a great breakthrough that will provide stability for the Middle East, prevent the expansion of Iran, and um, help all these countries collectively and individually. Uh, Dory Gold, among your many hats and your many fields of expertise, one of them is Saudi Arabia. And you wrote a best-selling book called Hatred's Kingdom several years ago about the Saudis. Um, one of the projects of the Trump administration seems to be to help Saudi Arabia rid itself of its extremist roots and uh, become a normal country which the United States, Israel, and the rest of the world can deal with um, and, and not be a problem too. When President Trump went to Saudi Arabia, he made a speech. Um, he was introduced by the king of Saudi Arabia, and he made a speech to 70 religious leaders. And his basic message was, you have to clean up your own house, meaning you have to stop preaching extremism towards the West. And there appear to be various things that are happening within Saudi where so there's at least some effort to reform uh, the kingdom. Do you have any insights into what's going on in Saudi Arabia internally that impacts relations externally? When I wrote this uh, book, which was very critical of Saudi Arabia in 2003, we were just after 9-11. And I wanted to understand what caused the motivation of Osama bin Laden, and of those Saudis that participated in the attack against the United States. And what I discovered was a radical ideology called Wahhabism. It's a religious ideology. By itself, it doesn't necessarily have to lead to militant attacks. 
But the Wahhabi ideology embraced the Muslim Brotherhood from Egypt. And that helped train young Saudis, that combination, to take a very militant position. As a result, Saudi Arabia was funding the most radical, militant, jihadi organizations in the world. One of them was Hamas. Hamas was attacking Israel with suicide bombing attacks in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa. And from my work and from the documents I examined, it looked like Saudi Arabia was responsible then for something like 50-70% of the Hamas budget. Today, Saudi Arabia has turned against the Muslim Brotherhood because they recognize that the, Saudi Ara- that the Muslim Brotherhood is the fountainhead of much of the radical Islamic terrorism that's inflicting the West. Saudi Arabia no longer gives Hamas even a nickel, let alone those high sums when I wrote my book. So I think Saudi Arabia is making an effort. Have they come around third base and are they about to reach home plate? they got a ways to go. But it is worth recognizing their changed role and their potential contribution as the country to stabilization in the Muslim world, as the country which uh, has inside of it the Muslim holy cities of Mecca and Medina, and therefore has the authority to bring about a reformation of the Muslim world. So stay tuned, but we should try and build on the changes that Saudi Arabia has begun to incorporate. Can you uh, elucidate a bit more on why the Muslim Brotherhood is a threat in the Middle East and beyond? The Muslim Brotherhood was founded back in 1928 uh, by an individual from Egypt who uh, definitely had a kind of imperial ideology. I've read his writings. I've read early Muslim Brotherhood writings. And they speak about uh, Islam recovering lost territories. They call Spain Andalus. Not Andalusia, Andalus. They want to. They have written. They want to recover the islands in the Mediterranean that were under Islamic rule. Southern Italy, up to Rome, Greece, and so with that kind of imperial ambition, uh, they are not a stabilizing force that accept the rules of international behavior. They want to undermine the international order. That's what makes them so dangerous. Later. In the 1960s, they had a leader named Syed Qutub who um, preached against fellow Muslims, calling them uh, every name in the book if they didn't adhere to the Muslim Brotherhood ideology. And then, as a result of the Muslim Brotherhood, this kind of radical militancy spread around the world. For example, just one example, there were two a Muslim Brotherhood leaders who ran away from their host countries. One was Mohammed Qutub, the brother of Syed Qutub. He got a job at King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah. And the same was true for another one, uh, 
who was in the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood. And the two of them, when they taught at King Abdulaziz University, had a student. His name was Osama bin Laden. One of them actually went with bin Laden to Pakistan, to Peshawar, where they prepared the groundwork for the establishment of al-Qaeda. That's what the Muslim Brotherhood is about. And, you know, I guess you have that expression in American English, you can't put lipstick on a pig. Well, you've got to be very careful because a lot of people have the lipstick ready and they're putting it on the Muslim Brotherhood to make it look more acceptable. Don't fall into that trap. Recognize the danger. Follow the lead of countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates that have made the Muslim Brotherhood illegal. And then you'll begin to ha- be able to handle the problem of radical Islamic terror. You know, uh, there was a book written about the Muslim Brotherhood in power when they uh, were, quote, elected in Egypt and after Mubarak fell. And that book um, by Traeger really uh, shows that when they came into power, all the freedoms, like freedom of expression that they were advocating for when they were out of power, once they were in power, they were denying the rule of law, the right to speak. They were, uh, there, were, there were evidence of torture of their opponents, and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in power really was not a very pretty sight. And um, now, one of the uh, tools that the Brotherhood has used or appears to have used is Al Jazeera. Do you have any comments or insights into the role of Al Jazeera uh, in terms of the Muslim Brotherhood or any other... Uh, impact that it has around the Middle East and the world? Sure. Al Jazeera has been very supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood. To give you an example, there is a Muslim Brotherhood preacher, leader. His name is Sheikh Yusuf Kardawi. He's Egyptian by nationality, but he he has sought refuge in Qatar, and Qatar has given him refuge. He could have been the actual uh, head of the Brotherhood, but they call him spiritual leader. Now, he had a regular television show on Al Jazeera where he would put forth the most you know, hate-filled speeches and controversial uh, statements that would support a very radical Islamic position. Why would Al Jazeera give this guy that kind of platform? because Al Jazeera supports that ideology. I have somebody who works in my center who's been following who are the, um, let's call it, leaders from Al Jazeera in programming, in various positions, and they come from Muslim Brotherhood backgrounds. So Al Jazeera might have an English network that looks tame, that might even look sophisticated, but understand that in Arabic... They have been spreading venom all across the Middle East. You know, Secure America now has, uh, is in the midst of an education campaign here in the United States about the Muslim Brotherhood. 
um, and the dangers that the Muslim Brotherhood poses to the U.S. and to the Western world. And uh, and uh, your brief uh, analysis um, is uh, is very helpful, and we will use that as part of our education process here. Um, Excuse me, back, uh, Alan. I have just two comments to add, if I may, very briefly about the Brotherhood. Please. You know, when the Brotherhood Journal. Um, regular journal was um, illegal to produce in Egypt, they started publishing it in London. And it was called Risalat al-Ikhwan, the message of the brotherhood. And until 2001, when you had 9-11, they had a stamp at the top, and in Arabic, they had the following uh, statement. Our mission, world domination. Now, you might be aware that in, there was a 1991 document that came out in U.S. courts that spoke about the Brotherhood's goal, and I will give you one sentence from that document. The Brotherhood are called in Arabic the Ikhwan, and this document says the Ikhwan must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad, in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers so that it is eliminated and God's religion is made victorious over all other religions. So if anybody supports the Muslim Brotherhood, they're supporting that ideology. You should be aware of that and be very careful about what you allow the Muslim Brotherhood to do anywhere. Uh, thank you. That's a um, that is a important warning, and we will spread that warning far warning far and wide. I'd like to um, I would like for you to talk about um, recently uh, the Trump administration issued uh, a, an official document uh, about their national defense strategy for the world. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to look at it um, in depth or uh, to study it, but from that document and also just in terms of how the Trump administration has been um, operating across the world, what, how would you describe uh, in terms of good, better, worse, uh, the, uh, the Trump administration's actions around the world as opposed to the previous administration? Well, the last thing I want to do is get drawn into American domestic politics. No, it's not but politics. I do... But I do believe that the Trump administration significantly has changed American policy towards the Iran nuclear agreement, which is one of the most dangerous uh, pieces of diplomacy that has been concluded since the Second World War. And uh, it, as a result, I think not only will America be more secure, but the entire world will be more secure 
as the U.S. replaces that agreement with a better set of arrangements. When you were recently the, uh, the Director General of Israel's uh, uh, Foreign Ministry, um, you were involved in several outreach efforts uh, beyond Israel's normal alliances in Africa and Latin America, uh, in Southeast Asia. Can you just talk about the changes that have been done uh, that you were part of and which the Netanyahu administration has uh, been uh, in favor of in terms of Israel going into new areas and forming new and stronger alliances? Well, I was, specific, I was involved in Southeast Asia. I was not involved in Latin America, but I was heavily involved in Africa. And I can tell you this, that we found enormous sympathy with Israel in a variety of African countries. I was told by one African foreign minister that the hard nut to crack for Israel would be South Africa, where there's all this ideological pent-up frustration with the Jewish state. So I made one of my objectives working on South Africa. I hosted South African envoys. I went multiple times to South Africa where I met the leading members of the South African Foreign Ministry. I signed agreements with them. And more interestingly, I met the heads and kings of the tribes in South Africa who were all thirsty for a relationship with Israel. They understood our technical capabilities, particularly in the area of water, and um, they were interested in expanding ties. I met with the South African foreign minister at the United Nations, and I was told that she was going to be very hard with me, and she was. But slowly but surely, sort of like melting ice, we progressed. There's a lot more work to do. We may have a new government in South Africa emerging, and hopefully they will have a different approach and a better approach. I don't know. But um, Israel should continue working on those ties. I used to also fly over the Sahara Desert, and I stopped in a number of countries which don't have diplomatic relations with us. One country which I stopped in, which um, became public, was Chad. Chad, you might know, on to its uh, east, it has Sudan. To its north, it has Libya. And they were extremely welcoming of my Israeli <clears throat> delegation, which stopped at an oasis in the uh, Sahara Desert. So um, <clears throat> there are many more countries which we can uh, have relations with, and we can um, perhaps restore diplomatic relations. Um, one country we definitely did that with <clears throat> was Guinea, from uh, with the capital of Conakry. That's how it's known, Guinea-Conakry. That's a completely Muslim country. But they embraced us, they hosted us in Conakry, and they sent envoys to meet us in Paris. That's just the beginning of what could become a big thaw in Africa. 
Can can you um, uh, relate a story that uh, you told to me privately about one of your trips to India and the attitudes of the Shia Muslims, which is a very large group in the very populous country of India, towards Iran? Well, there are certain cultural and, and religious ties that we're not all that familiar with in the West. Um, I was hoping, for example, to have some of my meetings with Arab countries, as I have met them in Europe, to have the meetings in India, which I did. And I was hoping, with the agreement of the Arab side, to disclose them in India, which would make India actually look good. But I found a certain resistance when I was there, because I believe that um, India has old ties with uh, Persia that go back hundreds of years. That's what Iran was called before it was called uh, Iran. And, uh, for example, you know the Sikhs, the guys with the turbans, when they had what was more or less independent autonomy in northern India, their spoken language was Persian, Farsi, uh, which just demonstrates the special ties. So um, the, I, I went to one of the Shiite centers in India. I found people curious about Israel, wanting to get to know us, uh, but at the same time explaining Iran is an old cultural source for certain parts of Indian society. Well, Dory Gold, I want to thank you for a very illuminating um, conversation um, and for sharing your expert thoughts and analysis on subjects that affect us all and that our audience is deeply interested in. And I wish you all the best, and I look forward to having you um, as a guest sometime in the near future. Let me just say one last point, because I don't want anybody to gain the wrong impression about India. India is a true ally of Israel, and we all come with certain cultural and historical backgrounds when our countries meet. And part of being smart in diplomacy is understanding those backgrounds and not demanding, um, not demanding a, uh, com the, not demanding your partner cutting off his own history, but at the same time being insistent that you and your partner reject terrorism, reject countries that sponsor terrorism, and seek to create a stable and better future. That's what we have with Prime Minister Modi of India, and um, I hope hopefully that relationship will continue to grow, as it has grown with the United States. Great. Thank you very much, Dory Gold, and like I said, uh, we look forward to having you again on soon.